Welcome to this episode of Faith and Reason 360. I'm Debo Dykes. And I'm Ann Phelps. And we've got a great podcast today. Um, right, Ann? Yeah, I'm excited. <laughs> okay, well, on the Christian calendar, this is Easter week, and Christians across the planet are celebrating the risen Christ. Uh, so we're going to have a lively conversation about reclaiming resurrection and what that means. But first, Anne, how was your Easter weekend? It was really nice. It was um, not exactly what we had expected. Um, <laughs> I hadn't been to church in a while, admittedly. Uh, my friend James was actually teasing me that that I effectively gave up church for Lent. Um, and, and so I told him, okay, James, I'm gonna, I, he's a music director, and I told him I'm going to I'm going to go to your church for Easter Sunday, and that's going to be a, I'm going to break my fast. And uh, of course, my baby got sick, and so we did nothing of the sort. Um, and instead, I stayed home and watched some DVDs that you gave me. Who did? Oh, that you did. I'm sorry. Yeah, I did. Um, some DVDs of, of The Challenge of Jesus, um, which was a great experience for me because um, the the speaker in those DVDs, that DVD series, is John Dominic Crossan, who uh, you didn't know at the time, um, but has been a hugely formative voice in my own faith development and in my own experience of helping me reclaim Christianity uh, when the church had told me not to ask certain questions, and not every voice in the church, of course, but the one I had mostly heard from, um, and to check my brain at the door, so to speak. Um, and so in college and in graduate school, reading his, his uh, reclaiming of some of the voices in the, in the Christian tradition really helped me reclaim my identity as a Christian. So spending Easter with his voice back in front of me was a, a really meaningful Easter Sunday, even hmm. though it wasn't what we'd planned. No Easter egg hunt, huh? <laughs> not, for so, not for the sick little okay. boy. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, okay, again, uh, our topic for this episode is Reclaiming Resurrection. And you won't believe our featured guest for this podcast, or wait, maybe you will, because I think Anne kind of hinted about it. But anyway, um, he is none other than John Dominic Crossan, uh, the renowned biblical historian and scholar who speaks all over the world about the historical Jesus, uh, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Uh, So Dom, are you there? I am there. Nice to talk to you, Anne and Debo. It's so nice to be on with you today. I uh, I want to first of all say say thank you for being here with us and for for having this conversation, and and also thank you for for all you've done for me unknowingly. <laughs> Marvelous. <laughs> That's great. Well, Dom, um, as we begin our discussion about uh, reclaiming resurrection, um, several years ago. Uh, Faith and Reason, uh, and you and Sarah produce a great series called The Challenge of Jesus. And the fourth theme in that series is on the resurrection of Jesus. Resurrection means the general resurrection. It was the faith of Israel that martyrs especially, very much especially martyrs, those who had died for God, would be vindicated. There had to be, in this, remember, this great divine cleanup of the world. The first order of business, said the Pharisees, and Paul, remember, was a Pharisee. The first order of business, when God came to clean up the mess of the world, would be the vindication of the martyrs. They would be resurrected. By resurrected, they meant vindicated publicly by God. So when they're using this term, resurrection, the claim they are making is that the general resurrection has begun. And if you say, where is that in the tradition? You suddenly realize they're saying in a different theological framework exactly the same thing that Jesus said when he said, the kingdom is already here. When Paul says, or anyone else, that Jesus is risen, they're saying the general resurrection has already begun. So once again, the kingdom has become a process. Resurrection has become a process. So the belief arose among certain Jews, and especially the Pharisees. Again, I repeat, Paul was a Pharisee. When that happened, what you're told is there has to be a great vindication of the dead, especially the martyrs, especially the martyrs. So 
the belief arose that when the great divine cleanup of the world, remember this eschatological kingdom, arrived, there had to be a vindication of the martyrs. Now, for Jesus, for the Christians, of course, Jesus is the supreme martyr. So, when they have visions of Jesus, instead of simply saying, well, he's been taken up to God, he something, uh, he's with God or whatever, it's, a, it's like a private privilege for Jesus. It's something special to him. They made the statement, the general resurrection has begun. So listening to that clip, it's, it's clear that resurrection was a term that was already in use in, in the society in which Jesus found himself. Um, would you be willing to say a little bit more about what the term resurrection would have meant to the people who were using it when they wrote it in these, in these ancient texts? And that's really the right way to go about it, because before you either affirm or deny it, you should, as it were, shut up for a while and listen to the people. I don't mean you, of course. All of us. All of us. And say, okay, what did they mean by this weird? What did they mean by this weird word? If, for example, in, in Judaism, it was recognized that certain extremely holy people, um, Elijah, um, uh, Enoch, maybe even Moses, it's, were taken up to God rather than dying and, and being buried and disappearing into the earth like all the other, their fellow Jews, they were taken up to God as a unique, special privilege given to them. And you could call that ascension. You could call that assumption. You could call it, if you like, Greek apotheosis. You could call it whatever. And that would be understood within Judaism and within the Greco-Roman world. The word resurrection is the strange word because in Judaism, there was no such idea at the time of Jesus that an individual all by himself or herself, could have a resurrection. They could have an ascension. They could be taken up to God if they were peculiar, peculiarly or especially holy. But resurrection was reserved for the idea that somehow or other, God's justice had to take care of the battered, tortured, executed bodies of martyrs. Because for most of Jewish history... <laughs> for the, the glory of the law and the greatness of the prophets and the writings, all of this was taken for granted that when you died, you went down to Shoal, which was like a great big condominium complex of graves beneath the earth. It was, it was dark, it was gloomy, it was dusty, because that's the way graves were. And it was over. It was the end. Yeah. And so what, you, what I hear you saying that I think is, is relevant and has been useful for me to learn over the years is that Sheol and hell, as we use it in, in the Western contemporary world, are not equivalent places just in another language. They're Absolutely very different not. concepts. Absolutely not. Even if we do it by shorthand, Sheol is not a place of punishment or torture or anything else. Hell is a place of torture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hell is, let us put it, hellish. <laughs> All right. Sheol is simply the end writ large, or the grave with a capital G. It, it's over and there's not a problem. It's not a good place. It's not a bad place. It's just the grave with a capital G. So the question then started, especially around the time of the Maccabean rebe rebellions, this would be around, in round numbers, 150 BCE, people began to ask, what about martyrs, though? I mean, if, if you die for God, if you die for affirming God in a persecution, you mean that's it? What about that? So they began to wonder, at least for martyrs, and it almost began sort of a little bit narrowly, doesn't God have some obligations? <laughs> Does the justice of God just go on for the future, but not for the past? So a lot of the talk about a future perfect world and a future just world, people said in the first century, hold it up for a second. What about justice for the past world? So when you come to Jesus, any good Jewish scholar, pious scholar, pious sage in the first century would have said, wait a minute, Jesus is not the first Jewish martyr who died on a Roman cross or in any other way. So if this is all about Jesus, then we're not talking about justice. We're talking about what we might call nepotism or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, God only saves <laughs> God's God own kid. Taking, exactly. <laughs> God is taking very good care of Jesus. But what about all the other martyrs? And if you imagine the first century when we know, for example, 
about the time Jesus was born, 4 BCE, say in round numbers, the Roman legions crucified 2,000 people, 2,000 Jews around Jerusalem. Now, they would have said, well, where is the justice of God? So the concept of resurrection is not about individuals. It's about how does God handle, and you put it as wide as possible, how does the justice of God handle the human race? I love that. You know, to to make this personal and and relate it to personal narrative, you know, one of the the first questions that I ever got literally kicked out of youth group for asking my youth director told me I needed to sit in the hall because my questions were, were causing other kids to stumble. Um, <laughs> that was the beginning of the end. Um, but that question was actually about uh, an idea that I had had. You know, you hear a lot of kids who, who, who raise the question, you know, what about the babies in China who've never heard of Jesus? Do they go to hell, right? And, and that wasn't the question I was asking. The question I was asking was, I had just stumbled upon this thinker, Epictetus, and and it mm. sounded to me like the things he was teaching in a different part, but not so far part of the world, um, were basically the same ideas that Jesus was teaching, very similar thoughts. And the oh, question yeah. I raised to my youth director as a 16-year-old who probably should have done something more fun than keep my nose in Epictetus books was, was what happens to the people who believe in the teachings of Epictetus, but die before Jesus was even born, can they be counted as believers? And it's it's more this impulse. It's not, it, the resurrection idea is, is connected to this impulse, this question about what about the people before Jesus? Did they not matter? Um, more, more so than some kind of hocus pocus rise from the dead, it's more a question about how do we honor the lives that have gone before? And I think that that's really broadens the concept in a way um, that's really meaningful. Absolutely. And that really is the question. Uh, even if you started narrowly from the martyrs of the past, but then it goes out of course for them. Somebody might say, well, I would have been a martyr if I got a chance and I never right. got a chance. <laughs> what about me? Yeah. And by the way, by the way, your question, congratulations on it at whatever age you were, because Dante in the Divine Comedy said exactly the same thing. He said, what about the pagan who today by the waters of the Indus has never heard of Christ? So in one sense, you know, when I talk about heaven and hell, first of all, just to make certain, I'm not talking about places in the future. I'm talking about options in the present. And and generally speaking, I think hell seems to be winning at the moment. It's an intense moment. It does seem like the way that heaven is kind of on the sidelines. But I, I think this is the question that is behind resurrection. When it's narrowed down to Jesus only, it becomes, um, it's almost along there with the eggs and the bunnies. You know, it's, it's fun for Sunday. But really, what does it do for the human race? So at least we're asking the right question. And Epictetus is a very good place to start asking the right questions, by the way. Well, and I love how that brings us back to the audio clip that we shared where you you referenced the resurrection as sort of the inaugural event in this divine cleanup of the world, this this eschaton, this moment. Jesus isn't, isn't coming... For just this moment, but but to initiate this process of of God's reign of justice on earth through peaceful means, and I think that um, that thinking of heaven as that the the inauguration of that process um, is is a much more pertinent and meaningful way for at least me as a citizen of the twenty first century to make sense of of this ancient rhetoric. Yeah, my my word for it was it's God conducting a great. Peace and reconciliation commission yeah. with the human race. Not just for Christians, but with the human race. Now, you are perfectly free, of course, to say, not interested. But at least you should first listen to say, what actually is the message? If it's just about somebody coming out of the graves, okay, fine, good for Jesus. How nice for Jesus. He had a hard Friday, but Sunday he's home free. I mean, it's, it's hard not to get a little bit cynical and say, well, okay, fine. So who cares? I mean, it's... So a real question would be, if you were a first century, open-minded, pre-enlightenment pagan, and you heard Paul saying this, your question would not be the modern one, oh, we don't believe that sort of stuff, we've had an enlightenment. You'd say, okay, of course people, but 
can, can ascend among the gods. Yeah, we've heard all. But tell me why your Jesus is any particular interest to me when, when I think that, you know, maybe Caesar's up there already in any case, taking care of the Roman Empire. So tell me about your Jesus. I can't say I don't believe because I, my, my stories are filled with people. But tell me what exactly you're claiming. What's your claim? Uh, Dom, why why did we focus on bodily re- resurrection? Why why bodily resurrection? Because body, bodies. Let me put it this way: justice is about bodies. To put it bluntly, if you're thinking of a martyr, it's not just that his soul hurts. If you're coming out of a nice Greek background, we all have souls, and we're all immortal. And maybe you could work out some kind of way that souls, you know, are good souls or bad souls. But basically, the experience is that justice is about bodies. It starts with, <laughs> it starts saying the Lord's Prayer with everyone having just enough food for today. Food, the material basis of life. We're not even getting into education or, or health or anything like that. We haven't got there yet. But you do notice that during his life, if you, if you look at what Jesus is spending all his time doing, it's healing, teaching, and eating. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, it's, yeah. that looks remarkably like health, education, and welfare to me. <laughs> yeah, so me too. What he's, re- what he's really involved in is how does God's justice distribute God's world to all God's people? That's, that's basically what it's about, past, present, and future. Well, we're going to continue, but first, uh, Dom, let's take a, a short break. And uh, I'd like to mention that along with hosting our Faith and Reason 360 podcast, Anne is a liturgical musician, and Anne, we're going to listen for a moment, and here is going to be singing a segment of There Is a Balm in Gilead from Theodicy Jazz Collective's Vespers album. explore these ideas in cerebral context, academic context, in ideas, but in in artistic and creative renderings, I think that that can get at some really significant ideas that shape the way we actually encounter these concepts. And so um, we're going to listen to uh, another clip from uh, The Challenge of Jesus, uh, exploring the ways that, that the resurrection is depicted in art. There's a huge difference between Western art iconography and Eastern art iconography, the Western tradition, Western and Eastern Christian traditions, in trying to show the resurrection. Yeah, so first of all, what are those differences in that Western and Eastern iconography? All right, let me back up one step. All the events, all the major events in the life of Jesus are described pretty clearly in the Gospels. If you're looking at the crucifixion, there's a description there. Now, if you're an artist, allowing local color and your own creativity and your own technical expertise, all you have to do is pretty much, I don't mean all that mixed, depict what is described, but you don't have to imagine it from scratch. All the events, with, except one, and it is the most important of them all, where is the description of the actual moment of Christ's resurrection? I'm not talking about the women at the empty tomb, which is a consequence and effect, you know, and, and after, or the, even visions of Jesus after his resurrection, all of which, of course, imply a resurrection. 
But for example, when you have the crucifixion, you don't depict it simply by the Pietà with Mary, with her son on her on her lap mourning. You show the actual event. So where's the event of the resurrection? If what was it? What was it like? So if you imagine yourself an artist, and all of a sudden you stop cold, where's the depiction of the resurrection? Okay, we've got the we got the burial at the end of say of Mark fifteen. We got the women at the empty tomb, Mark sixteen. But out in the middle, we missed something, the most important scene of them all. So the difficulty obviously was for early Christians, and we know this because of what happened, how do we depict what is not described? And what happened actually was they came up with two absolutely, profoundly divergent pictures in art and in the whole tradition of art. I'm going to call one of them the individual resurrection. This is the one we know best in the West because it became our normative Easter icon. Jesus is shown coming out of the tomb, beautiful, magnificent, gorgeous rippling muscles sometimes. <laughs> yeah, it looks a little bit like an athlete well buff coming out of the gym. <laughs> but magnificent. I mean, think of Rubens and medieval art. And you usually have the cowering or the uh, sleeping soldiers. But that's, that's let's call that the individual resurrection tradition. And the other one I'm going to call the universal resurrection tradition. I call it that because... Jesus never comes out alone. He always comes out at least with Adam and Eve. And maybe others as well. But basically, Adam and Eve represent the human race. So I'm going to call that the universal resurrection tradition. You could date the first one maybe around to 400 and round numbers, the other to the year 700. So it took them a while to get there. Right. To, yeah. to figure right. out theologically, how do I depict what's never described? Now, it's the difference between them. In the first millennium of Christianity, you could say, well, they were both there sort of competing for dominance. But in the second millennium, round numbers, say from a thousand on, without a doubt, the individual is the Western Easter icon and the universal is the Eastern. And by Eastern, I mean Eastern Christianity, all across Eastern Christianity, the Byzantine world, Coptic, Russian, Syriac, is a complete different image. And I think three things about that. One is it's different. That's simply a factual statement. All right. <laughs> you even right. look it up. Yeah. The well, second we've seen one it, is, okay. <laughs> yeah, you've, seen them. you've seen them. Anyone can see them that looks them up in, in, in art history or on the... The Google, now Google knows everything. <laughs> it used to be God was omniscient, now it's Google. Now it's Google. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the interesting thing is, in terms of what we talked in the, in the first discussion about the New Testament, say how Paul would have imagined, if you said to Paul, okay, Paul, draw it for me. <laughs> draw me a picture of what you're talking. You keep talking about the risen Lord, the risen Lord, the risen Lord, we're all, yeah, Paul, I got it. Draw me a picture. Would he have drawn a kind of a Western one or an Eastern one? And part of the, the thesis that I have, as you would know from what I said in the first part, is of course he would have drawn the Eastern one. So in plain language, Eastern Christianity's Easter icon is in far closer harmony and continuity with the New Testament that is our Western one. So we have lost something. We've lost continuity with the original vision. And that's sad. Yeah. I think that says a lot about our our Western culture in in general and the hyper individualism um, that is is so rampant and and to, to dangerous levels here. Um, but I think that it's it is so true, right? In in art history, if you see Adam and Eve represented, that's supposed to represent humanity writ large, right? That that's yes, that's exactly. what they symbolize, and um, it really does raise raise some interesting questions about literalism and how our culture suggests that that we should take the resurrection literally scientifically physically literally um it raises some interesting questions because in the east uh as you raise up in the challenge of jesus if if a whole community of people were were resurrected along with him in a literal bodily sense wouldn't there have been 
some people who noticed that all the tombs were empty. Wouldn't that yes. have, have changed the way? And what, what does that tell us about the way that this was interpreted and intended? Well, it, it tells me clearly that you could imagine somebody discussing one tomb, literally. You could even, you could even discuss as people have, if there was a camera crew there, you know, would, would they have been able to catch it on tape, as it were? That has been discussed by scholars. And my answer to that is that uh, CNN wouldn't be able to see it, but Fox News would probably get it because they get, <laughs> lots, they get lots of things the rest of us never see. But anyway, um, I, I think what is crucial for me in the Eastern vision is, first of all, you're never allowed to forget that the one who's grasping Adam and Eve by the wrist is the, wound, is, is the wounded one, is the crucified one. Generally, he carries a small cross, a ceremonial cross. If he's using both his hands for Adam and Eve, then maybe an angel might be holding the cross. He has wounds very often visible. His halo has a cruciform shape. The gates of Hades, the bifold gates of Hades are usually set like a cross. You're constantly reminded that it is the one who died, who was crucified, who is leading out the human race. From, from death. So it raises a huge question, way beyond questions of literal and metaphorical. Of course, it's metaphorical. But the question then becomes metaphor for what? What does it mean to say that the crucified one liberates the human race from death? And the only way it makes sense to me is that as the crucified one, of course, Jesus was crucified by Roman imperialism because of conducting nonviolent resistance to Roman law and order. It wasn't simply the pilot was having a bad hair day or something or was a monster. <laughs> it, right. He crucified Jesus for the right reason. He didn't round up his followers, which is what he would have done if they were violent. When the Romans were dealing with a nonviolent, what we might call an activist, they always picked off the leader. That's what That was the Roman system. If you came against us with nonviolence, we'd kill your leader. And if you're still at it, we'd kill your next leader until you get the message. So we know that from Pilate's point of view, Jesus was opposing Roman law and order nonviolently. So if I try to think today, what, how does nonviolence, let me allow it to be incarnated in Jesus, but not, not, not simply exclusively in Jesus, how does nonviolence save the human species, our species, from extinction? Because it looks to me that since we've never had a weapon we didn't use or get one that wasn't more violent than his predecessor, we have a serious problem with escalatory violence. And it seems to be the drug of choice of our species. So a very serious question without trying to be apocalyptically dramatic or anything else is if violence always escalates, what does the trajectory look like for our human species? So I can imagine saying, putting it now in abstract language, the trajectory of our species can be saved from violence only by nonviolence, because the spiral of violence can't be stopped by violence. I can't imagine how to do that. The claim is being made about the human species, the human race. On the other case, you could say, well, this is just about Jesus. This is a special privilege for Jesus. Uh, maybe it might apply to other individuals. You could build a whole theology from that. But it's not about the human race. You might build a whole theology about Christians who believe in this. If you believe that Jesus rose literally from the dead, you will rise literally from the dead. And it becomes dangerously close and the transcendental snake oil. So you really have to ask, what, are we, what is the claim? And is this claim in any way not verifiable, but meaningful? So I find the Eastern much, much, much more profoundly meaningful. In addition to that question about what is the effect of these, um, I'm drawn as someone who works more in theology than in biblical history uh, to, to questions of what was the cause of this difference in the West and the East. And, and what it makes me think of is that uh, you brought up this concept of enlightenment earlier and, and the enlightenment or the renaissance or, or whatever it is that happened to, to the human brain um, around the 1500s in the West. Um, 
this idea that we could reason our way through things and we could think about things and the scientific revolution, right? We, we learned that, that the sun was the center of the universe, not the earth. And we learned that we could test things in certain ways and we could have things that were, were tr- proven true and proven false. And that was where this emergence of, of the concept of literalism at all came from. Literalism, as opposed in some bizarre binary way to metaphor, would have been a nonsensical idea to, to ancient people, to people yeah. who were writing at mm-hmm. the time of Jesus, that, that what is literally true is different somehow than what is metaphorically true. That bifurcation of truth is, is a remnant of a time period that wouldn't come until over a thousand years later. And I think that that's so hard for us as, as modern people, people living post-enlightenment, to, to peel back all those layers that are present in our own analysis mm-hmm. of things, that our impulse to want to prove something as scientifically literal just wasn't a concept that they even had. So maybe we, we want to know, Dom, um, that Anne has made a, a strong, a strong uh, point about is uh, how has or what has literalism, literalism uh, done to modern Christianity here in the West? Well, it's put it bluntly, it's gutted it like a fish. <laughs> no, um, just think of this example. The Latin word, scientia, scientia. That meant knowledge. For a thousand years, a thousand five hundred years, it meant knowledge. All of a sudden, scientia gave us science. So knowledge becomes science, as if that's the only type of knowledge. The Enlightenment was absolutely, fantastically marvelous in all sorts of ways. It did, of course, eventually give us the hydrogen bomb, but we won't get into that. (laughs) But but yes, I mean, it did. It really did. We would not be having this conversation without science and (laughs) technology. But the other part of it, the endarkenment, because if there's an Enlightenment, there has to be an endarkenment. We really, really lost our sense of metaphor. And the most important truth comes through metaphor because metaphor Mm -hmm. is how you see things for example let's imagine three people looking at the crucifixion a roman soldier looks at the crucifixion he sees the same thing and he says another good day for roman law and order let's say a jewish bystander looks at it fellow jew and he says oh yeah another poor jew and a roman cross what else is new and a Christian looks at it and thinks this is some revelation of the very being of God, that if, if God became incarnate, the first thing we do is crucify him. Those are three interpretations, if you want to say, of the same fact. And, yeah, I do think facts exist, by the way. Yeah. Interpretations <laughs> may these days. <laughs> yeah, I do, I do think facts exist and interpretations may be debated, certainly, and that's a perfectly valid uh, process to debate interpretation, but it is not to deny that facts exist. Anyway, so I think what happens in that case is we forgot that metaphor is what we live in. Metaphor is to our humanity much the way air is to our lungs. We live in metaphor. The small ones we don't notice. I mean, if, you, if somebody says a cloud, the, the clouds sail across the sky, you don't want anyone to say, they don't sail. Boats, you don't want, you say, oh, get over it. But if a metaphor gets big enough, we call it reality. And if it really gets big enough, we call it religion. Yeah. Wow. And we forget that, wait a minute, this is a way of seeing it. That doesn't make it wrong. It does not make it wrong. But to say something is a metaphor, like I just said, for example, about the resurrection, means you have not solved your question. You say, okay, now, if it's a metaphor, what does it mean for us here and now? Well, one of the things I love about the implications of that, uh, to carry us forward, is just this idea that that something is less true if it's metaphorically true. And and one of the really revolutionary things in my thought that that has paralleled my involvement with, with your insights has been... This idea that if something is literally true, it's it's merely literal, not merely yeah. metaphorical. And and I've seen a lot of a discourse this Easter floating around Facebook and, and and wherever about poems that explore, you know, how sad to reduce 
reduce the resurrection to mere metaphor. And that just makes me laugh because where I sit on the other side of this process, if it happened to this one guy this one time in history, then it's over and, and what does that mean for me? Whereas if the resurrection is this incredibly large concept that is ongoing and, and I am a part of, uh, then the demands for me are, are quite high and quite inspiring. So let's listen to another clip taken from Dr. Crossan's The Challenge of Jesus. How do they argue? Does Justin Martyr, for example, say, well, your claim that Caesar has risen from the dead and got arisen from at least the funeral pyre, if not the dead, and be taken up among the gods, that's, that's impossible. And when Christians were read by pagans, did they say, well, your story about Jesus rising from the dead, that's impossible. Neither of them claimed, as we very often do in our post-enlightenment world, impossibility. They couldn't. Their stories told these. They knew, for example, claims that Caesar had ascended into heaven. They knew, for example, Christian claims that Christ had ascended into heaven. They didn't ask, as we might as well, is that literal? Could you go up there in some cloud nine and find them? They said, what claim are you making? If Caesar is among the gods, so what? If Christ is among the gods, so what? And they knew exactly what they meant by it. Because the claim a human being was among the gods is the claim that this human being's vision, this human being's program, this human being's life was a powerful, transcendental gift to the human race. That's what they meant. When somebody in the first century said a human being was divine, or if he was male, a son of God, or a revelation of God, or a divine manifestation, or any of that language, the claim they are making in their language is that this person has done something of transcendental importance for the human race. So of course when they died, they didn't just molder into dust, they were taken up among, among the gods. When Justin Martyr, for example, compares any claims made of Jesus and any claims made of the emperor, he's willing to say, we're not claiming anything that you don't claim about your emperor. And when you read that the first time, you think, he's just given away everything. But then he continues. And this is what's going to make him a martyr. He's going to say, yes, but Jesus has done far more for the earth than all your emperors rolled together in the ball. That's my rough translation of his Greek. That's a claim. So whenever we hear language like, I say it again, divine, son of God, all of that language, get over the enlightenment. And I say, well, we, 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 we don't use that language. We don't believe that stuff. A claim is being made that this person's life, this person's vision, this person's dream gives extraordinary gifts to the human race. That's what you debate. You're debating whether Caesar, running the Roman Empire and giving you peace through victory, or Christ, running the Christian empire, if you will, and giving us peace through justice, which program runs the earth. In the statement we just heard, you seem to issue a challenge that says, it really is up to us to choose which kind of world we want to live in. The Roman world of peace through victory or the Jesus world of peace through justice? If you imagine the scene, and it is a parable actually, not a piece of history, of Jesus with Pilate, say in John's Gospel, and Jesus tells him that my system is not like your system. <laughs> I don't come from this world of yours at all. And they say, okay, what's going on? The Roman boast was that we have brought peace because, for example, we have put our military all along the great rivers, the, the Danube, the Rhine, the Euphrates, and inside that cordon, everything is quite, quite peaceful. They invented bases. <laughs> as a... Now, there was the Roman peace. There really was, and that had all been cynical. And they would have said, 
without, it's all on there, it's, it's written everywhere, it's on statues, it's not, I'm not finding it particularly profoundly. By my research, Rome would have said, we brought peace and we did it by victory and we didn't invent the concept, we just got better at it than all the other empires before us. Rome would have said, that's where they're all gone and we're here. And I've distilled it down to peace through victory. And I think that's a fair summary of the Roman boast. Now, what's the, what's the alternative to that? The Rome would have said there is no alternative. This is the way of the world. This is the way of civilization. Now, at the back of my mind, what I'm saying to myself as I read this and hear myself speaking, okay, Rome, civilization saved us from barbarism, but what's going to save us from civilization? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, and yeah. Over, over in the Jewish world, there is a dream that maybe God has a different vision of peace on earth and to bring it down to its core, it would be peace through justice. And if you say, well, what do we mean by justice? Yeah, again and again, you can say when they beat their swords and the plowshares and their spears and the pruning hook, when everyone gets a fair share of the world and sits under their own fig tree and their own vine and don't steal somebody else's. They have a quiet vision long before Jesus, for 500 years before Jesus. And what does a just world look like? It's modeled on a well-run family. That's where they get their model. They simply said, well, in a well-run family, a well-run peasant household, everyone kind of gets enough. No, everyone doesn't get exactly the same, but you don't have half the kids starving and half the kids overfed. So they said, okay, a well-run household. And then the, the, the great biblical breakthrough is, oh, God is like the householder of the world house. That's why everyone should get a fair share. And it's, it's so obvious when you, when you hear it, it's nothing about you know, democracy or civil rights or human rights. You're just saying the world is just a great big peasant farmhouse and God is like a good peasant householder. What it makes me think of, to, to tie in a couple of these different themes about things that aren't mere metaphor, I really love uh, this idea that Whatever happened on that first Easter Sunday to, to a body and to the atoms and molecules, and, and I don't do a lot of science talk, so I can't say more than that, mm-hmm. but whatever happened that day, um, we are charged with being the resurrected body of Christ. And we see this in the early church in Paul's writings, which are obviously older than the writings of, of the Gospels. Right. We see this idea that you are the hands and you are the feet and and you are the eyes and the ears and the vocal cords and whatever it is that you're called to be in this body of Christ, we are that resurrected body. Whatever happened to those atoms and molecules, this idea of love of neighbor and and mercy for those who have been shown no justice and, and lifting up the lowly is so powerful that the empire can kill it, but it will rise again, and it will rise again through us. We are charged with that gospel message. We are charged with now doing, as you say, feeding and healing and eating together and and taking care of one another. We are now called to ensuring welfare, education, and health care. And the other side of that, of course, is that Paul would say, and you do realize what happened to Jesus for trying to do that. Yeah. It wasn't simply about charity. Um, The Romans did not crucify people for charity. They really didn't. I mean, they weren't. And they didn't crucify philosophers for having even radical ideas. They didn't go around crucifying, say, Stoic philosophers or Cynic philosophers, even if they jeered a bit at them. They might have booted them out of Rome every now and then because they got impatient. They crucified... I'm talking now when we're not talking about uh, violent rebels. The only non-violent rebel rebels that Rome crucified were what you and I might call activists. Yeah. Wow. We did a little more than talk about it, but certainly didn't attack. But we're gathering crowds and might be doing something like, say, riding into Jerusalem on, 
on a donkey <laughs> or Palm Sunday, which is a little bit like looking for trouble. Yeah, maybe that's <laughs> tipping over some tables. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> that's, There's that's, ways. That's activism. I, I love that that impression you give of that that radical demonstration. That and, and the, what what you raised a minute ago that being the hands and feet of Jesus, being the movement, isn't a weak call. It's not safe. It got him killed. I, um, I've been reading every day a, a little passage from Dietrich Bonhoeffer as a part of uh, a commitment I made in, uh, let's say, late January uh, to read a little bit of Bonhoeffer every day for the next four years. And um, one of the things he says over and over again, and, and of course this is a theologian who, who was working under Nazi leadership and was actively resisting the Nazi regime um, and ultimately got executed by the Nazis uh, for his resistance, um, he says over and over again, don't think this is simple. Following Jesus, literally trying to do this work, being the hands, being the feet, it is not safe. And, and being an activist, creating demonstrations is not, um, is not mere metaphor, shall we say. It is, it is a high-stakes game. No, I, th- I think that's very, very true because it's going to be important to be not just negative. If, yeah. if all Jesus was, was well, he didn't like the Roman system. Well, too bad. Yeah, uh, that's just he a political powerful, yeah. yeah, he had a powerful, positive, persuasive, at least to some people, alternative in a world where most people would have said, and many still do, well, the only way you ever get peace is that we're stronger than anyone around and they're all afraid of us, and so we have peace. And, of course, that's the peace of the graveyard. In the office, it's a very peaceful place. Now, that might be, as a system, all you could say about that is that if we were starting 2,000 years ago, we might say, well, it's a reasonable system. It does seem to work. But now we're 2,000 years later, and we know that we have got to a point in that trajectory of that system where we are capable in many different ways, actually, of destroying the world, none of which was possible to a Roman. Yeah. Well, and, and today that seems to be a little bit more uh, closer to home than, than ever, especially in my lifetime. Yeah. Um, well, it's, you're, you're asking, is it possible any way, shape, or form to stop the spiral of escalatory violence by violence? If not, then we have to have a sort of, sort of a massive nonviolent resistance. Yeah, you know, I just want to say say thank you for all of the hard work and and the the critical thought and and the time and energy you've put into this. I, as we have this conversation about resurrection, and I, I revisit some stories of my youth, and I'm struck by this image of of the empty tomb and and this idea that um, you know we've all heard in the contemporary world, you know, there's been this philosophical moment where, where people declared that God, God is dead, right? Yes. Um, and, and that was really big around the turn of the 19th to 20th century. Um, and it strikes me, you know, I had that moment as I was asking these questions um, and I had this very clear and coherent faith with very black and white, very literal, um, I dare I say merely literal uh, interpretations of these scriptures, and um, as I asked these questions that got me kicked out of youth group, I saw <laughs> I saw God die in front of me. The reality of who I was 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 dangerous and challenging, and and it didn't fit there. And and the God that they had been selling me, which which was truly just a projection of the self, just a projection of one's own values up into the sky, um, that God fell to pieces in front of me. And it was this kind of reasonable and thoughtful inquiry into these stories that helped me revisit that, that God that had died. And as I sort of metaphorically went back to that tomb, I saw that it was empty. And I saw that that that's what resurrection is to me, is that through these very questions that are so dangerous to some uh, we can actually find meaning and, and God can be resurrected in our lives and we can be called to this nearly impossible but truly, truly useful task of 
of being the hands and feet of justice in the world. Um, and so thank you for, for being a part of bringing me back to, to this powerful story that, that um, Jesus is the central metaphor for. Thank you, Anne. Thank you, Deborah. Anytime you want me. <laughs> Dama, I cannot thank you enough yeah. for being with us today. Um, as far as I'm concerned, and I know hundreds and hundreds of others, mm-hmm. uh, probably thousands, mm-hmm. um, for for me and for them, you are the mm-hmm. historical Jesus scholar. There is yes. no one else that knows more about this than John Dominic Crossan. We at Faith and Reason invite people to examine their faith, to think critically about their faith, to reason with their faith, not not to make not not to take away from their belief, mm-hmm. but to deepen one's understanding and relationship with their faith. We explore faith and reason through through different topics and different avenues, and and on this month's podcast we. We explored the idea of resurrection, and that's what we're we're doing in general, right? Is is resurrecting right. ideas, resurrecting lost voices in in the tradition, in various faith traditions uh, that have been silenced by the powerful, silenced by the empire for whatever reason. Um, and and what a powerful thing this yeah. month to explore resurrection. And it ties in what you just said right. is those uh, resurrecting those voices that ties into last month's absolutely the oh, and the voices of of women and and why we were raising that up. And um, it, it leads me to be excited about next month, uh, where we will be visiting voices and, and silenced voices again as we explore music in the movement. Uh, we will be talking with some very exciting special guests about the way that music can inspire us and lead us into just action and what that looks like on the ground. We will be talking with Mark Miller, a composer out of New Jersey who is on faculty at Drew University and Yale University, uh, who uses his music as a gospel composer and a choir director and a community leader to uh, urge us all toward a a more just world. We will be in conversation also with Deirdre Payne, uh, a professional woman here in Jackson who grew up in Vicksburg, Mississippi in the 1960s and saw firsthand what it was like uh, to be amidst great social movement and and to witness the way that music can inspire us and can empower us to do great things. And she continues to live in this complicated place and, and work as a musician herself. So we were excited to talk about one of something near to my heart, obviously, music with some other justice-oriented musicians. Uh, we hope you'll join us again. For more information about Faith and Reason, please visit our website at faithandreason.org, F-A-I-T-H-A-N-D, Reason, R-E-A-S-O-N dot org. And you can also friend us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.